Hi and welcome to The Rice Life, a podcast by Rice Extension. We aim to bring you the latest in R&D, industry news and answer your questions. You're joined by myself, Harriet and Charlton. This week, we are discussing the automated irrigation in rice. Harriet chats to Dr. John Hornbuckle about his project on smart irrigation control for water and labour savings in the rice growing systems and what benefits he hopes his research will deliver to our industry. John leads the Centre for Rural and Regional Futures, Deakin University, in the Irrigation Research Group at Griffith. We are also going to see the industry research crossover as we chat with Grant Oswald, the Automation Manager for Padman Stops. Grant chats about what he's been working on and how John's research is combined into that. I also chat to Chris Morshead, who's a rice grower from Wajeli, about his experience using two stops that were installed just after he went to permanent water in the C20 rice season. And we also just wanted to make a note that both Deakin University and Padman Stops are two of our rice industry awards sponsors. Deakin University has returned as an industry supporter and we are pleased to announce that Padman Stops will be supporting our industry field day for the grower of the year. This is a great fit as productivity, technology and sustainability are key features of the judging criteria for the Rice Industry Awards. Just a quick update on the awards, this year we've got an impressive judging panel. The panel comprises of Peter Burke, the 2019 Sunrise Grower of the Year, Anthony Vag, the Acting Chair of the Rice Advisory Panel, and Eva Carissa, the Executive Officer for IREC. Eva recently received an Order of Australia Medal, which she should be commended on for her dedication to the irrigation industry. The judging will commence at the end of July before being announced at the IGA conference dinner later in this year. Before we get into talking all things automated in irrigation, we thought we'd start off with a grower question. Our grower question this week comes from Chris Morshead, and I got Chris to record his question for Pete just at the end of the interview that I did with him because there was a bit of talk at the end of this season around some growers that Rizik might have reverted to an old type or reverted back to the original breeder seed. So I got his question about this to Pete Snell, the plant breeder at Yanko New South Wales DPI, to give an explanation about why this isn't the case. Hey Pete, I'm just wondering, the crop structure and physiology this year of Rizik is markedly different to previous seasons, it's yielded better and it's stood up. Have we gone back to our original first generation seed and derived the foundation, breeders foundation and paddy seed from that? Or have we had a change in variety? Because the difference between this year's RISIC and last year's RISIC in terms of its height, its structure and its yield too, this season has well out yielded the last three or four in my, only in my experience I can speak on. But the questions being asked is, have we changed strains? Not entirely sure whether we have, but the question's out there. So response to, to Chris's question, um, we haven't changed RISIC as much. We have been highly invested in the purity of RISIC. Um, we've tried different approaches to minimise genetic um, risk. We've done a lot of... Um, 
farmer fields and, and seed crop inspection and DNA extraction, genetically the markers are telling us it's not changed. So why do you think some of the growers thought that their crop looked a bit different this year? Well, the crop um, can look a bit different based on seasonal um, issues, but also grower. If you change rates a little bit, and it's something we're mindful in the pure generations of the variety, if, if there's a slight differences in seeding rates, it can present phenotypically a lot differently. Um, we're finding, particularly for lodging, um, uh, particularly lower, lower but consistent rates, give you better tolerance because you get a more bulbous uh, growth, more tillering earlier and less propensity to lodge. Yep. And I should have asked you, what for anyone that doesn't know, what does phenotypically mean? For appearance to eye, basically. Um, phenotypes a combination of genetics and environment. Yep. So phenotypes what you're perceiving, as I say, part of it's part of it is genetic, but part of it can be influenced by the environment, so the season and um, also how you sow and the, and the fertiliser you're using. So um, one of the interesting things is to do rate trials or, or sowing rate trials um, in, in fields and, and see the differences. I mean, a lot of it you will pick in, in bay or in paddock variation. You can see sometimes, particularly in cut and fuels, it looks like a different variety. Um, and it, it's one of those things that we'd hope to... Some of the more, I suppose, consistent varieties um, look uniform, but some varieties look very different. Um, we notice in the older, taller varieties too, they look very different depending on season. Kaima, for example, was a bad one and almost looked like two different crops, but it was just um, just a, you know, a bit of height difference and, and some years you didn't see it at all. So. so what happens each year to maintain genetic purity? All right, so we test our three generations of pure seed we run at Rappel, generally um, DNA and uh, in two levels that are quick and ready. That gives us a result pretty quickly, um, but also longer term uh, with DNA fingerprinting. We can put that in the context of historic data of that variety. Um, this year we had some off types in growers' fields and we're pretty keen to get on top of that. So a foundation and, and a commercial seed of RISIC. And we went to and identified those off types as they presented, phenotypically different, being a bit earlier, a bit lower on the canopy. Tagged them, um, took a bit of DNA there, and also revisited that field because we had GPS re references and took some the plant itself and, and the grain. So we could test that at the end as well. So we do that if there's you know adamant uh, mixtures and growers usually flag them to us and we come and have a look so following on with that we also will take a the grower um, receival sample and phenotypically look at that with our i suppose grain quality um, equipment here to see if the, it's manifesting itself in something that would be a deduction for a grower so different grain types in there um, so we do that and, and uh, we've got a new bit of kit at the moment which is essentially a colour sorter and you can tell it to segregate on, on grain dimensions. So if RISIC had shorter grain types in it, for example, we could see what proportion of uh, a set amount is and um, you know be mindful of that and also get those grains DNA tested as well if it came to it. So the long and the short, there's no chance it's reverted to an off type. No, not really. I mean, we're very paranoid, particularly with RISIC. It's two-thirds of our, you know, any season, it's two-thirds of our crop. Um, sunrise, it's it's a pretty renowned variety, 
for their clientele, um, you know, Middle East and even Kellogg's um, companies like that, pretty um, pretty rigid on their specifications, and we don't want we're trying to avoid seasonal, but even you know batch variations of that. And I mean, a lot of that uh, we need to know, and that's why we invest so heavily in the pure seed system is that we can at least say we're giving the growers the best and most pure and. In the context, we'll view it every year to see if there's any drift. And obviously, if there's drift, we'll, we'll can um, aspects of the seed program to make sure we get consistent with previous and, and uh, well uh, received by uh, Sunrise Clientele um, product. And now it's time to get into our episode and hear from John about his project about smart irrigation control for water and labour savings in a rice growing system. John, can you give us an overview of what your research project is about? Yes, the project uh, I think is pretty unique and pretty exciting in that um, it's got um, Deakin Universities um, is obviously leading the, the research component of it. But one of the things that um, the university is very focused on is developing relationships with, with industry partners and commercial partners um, within the research. So we're very lucky to have um, Goanna Ag and also Padman Stops, who are two commercial partners involved in the irrigation industry um, through the sensing side with Goanna Ag and through the automation side through Padman Stops, um, have those guys involved with the project as well. So it's a consortium um, between those parties along with um, help as well from um, and support from Sunrise as well um, that's, that's helping as well. So a lot of the uh, tools that we're developing will be commercially available um, through the industry partners and it'll also then be able to feed in through to things like the Sunrise GIS system, et cetera, as well, um, with some of the information and that we're, we're collecting um, out of the products that we're developing. Oh, that's good. It's good that it's going to have that sort of industry relevance and applicability sort of, yeah, straight away if, if you're working with them as you go. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think it's, it's good to, um, to involve the commercial partners right at the start. Um, I think, you know, if you look back through a lot of research projects, um, been in research since 2000 and you know, I think a lot of the earlier days we did a lot of things and then hoped at the end of a project that there'd be a, someone would adopt it or there'd be a commercial partner or farmers would want to adopt it whereas I think we've moved much more to a model now where we've got you know directly working on commercial fields within this this um, this research program and having commercial partners um, help develop the tools on the way through and the systems I think you know really gets the best outcome from the research. Yeah, no, very good. So what's, what is the objective of your project? Yeah, so the objective just very simply is to develop an, uh, a sensing and forecasting system that uh, has the ability to uh, use automation uh, within rice systems to try and um, save water. So if you look at a lot of irrigation industries, say particularly uh, pressurised systems, there's been some uh, work that's been undertaken around using sensing systems and then controlling the amount of the water applied. Um, so what we're doing within the rice systems is using um, a similar sort of approach. We've got in-field sensors measuring things like um, water levels within rice bays, uh, forecasting things like temperature events, and then actually controlling through an automation process, um, you know, and using machine learning, et cetera. Um, to analyze some of that data and then automatically controlling those irrigation gates. So 
what it allows us to do is to move the industry more and more towards a drier rice uh, production base. And obviously due to the importance of water um, in terms of its high cost and also high cost of labor, uh, automation has a lot of potential within those areas. So getting these systems available within, um, within the rice industry has a lot of potential upside in you know, using less water, um, also reducing labor costs as well. Yeah, awesome. So I guess at the end, end of the project, um, yeah, what do you hope will be the, um, the end sort of absolute outcome of, of the project? Yeah, so what we'd like to do by the end of the project is have a, a system that's, um, that's available that uh, uses smart automation. So what we mean by smart automation is not just being able to turn things on and off remotely through your mobile, but actually having um, sensing systems within the field um, and also using, like I mentioned, those seven and 14 uh, day weather forecast to then control uh, based off that sensor information in an automated fashion. So um, by the end of the project, we'll have a, a system that's available to be able to meet that criteria. So it will then allow things like um, lowering risk on things like a lot of interest. You'd, you'd know yourself on um, things like delayed permanent water, but there can also be some potential risks. So we've got sensors that are available to then, um, you know, try and assist with that through the, the soil moisture monitoring and control irrigations based off, off those events. Um, so I've got very sort of, I'd say, low hanging fruit that we can address with this technology. Um, by the end as well, we'd also like it that we can have uh, systems that could be um, more suitable to, to drier rice um, where we've got it that um, we've even got a, a, a potential to grow an aerobic rice through very, very high frequent irrigation, um, which labor wise turning water on and off wouldn't make or wouldn't make economic sense. Whereas once we've got a, a fully smart um, system, well then we've got the potential to be able to, to look more and more towards that, that sort of an approach. Yeah. So that sort of smart system or the, or the automation sort of part of it, how does that actually work? Yeah, so how it works, uh, we have a, a series of sensors that we're looking at within the field. Um, so at the moment, we're using a lot of um, sensors uh, that have been capacitance-based sensors. So um, they've been used a lot, say, within the cotton industry, um, where we can actually measure soil moisture off those. We actually developed a technique, uh, our group in Griffith in a previous project, where we can also use those same probes to actually measure water levels. So rather than install the 80 centimetre probe uh, to the whole depth within the soil, we actually install it halfway so we can pick up the um, soil moisture um, within the root zone of the rice crop. We can use that for controlling things like uh, delayed permanent water irrigations, but we also have a series of, of that probe that's, a, that's above the soil surface. And our group was able to develop a way that we could measure water height off that. So with the one sensor, we can measure water height. Um, so when we've got ponding periods, we can control that off that water height. When we're th doing things like delayed uh, permanent water, we can control off, off the soil moisture part of it. So that's the information that it collects within field. Then we can feed that back and then we can automate gates um, within you know, bankless channels to be able to maintain heights over key critical periods. Um, the other element as well is incorporating the forecasting component of it. So things if we want to look to in the future like strategic ponding of rice, just when there's cold events occurring, um, it's looking at that data in a seven to 14 day sort of future and then saying, okay, uh, looks like there could be an event where we need to 
you know, put on deep water and just strategically pond at those periods. So that's what the system looks like very simply and how it feeds in. Behind that, there's also a lot of complex um, science or research. Um, so within the project, we've got Arben who's looking at things like machine learning, algorithms to be able to pick up that sensor data and then use that in the best way within controlling those irrigation gates. So, yeah. All that information then goes into like an app or like how does, how does someone, I guess, understand the information that's coming, coming in? Yeah, so that information comes back to the, the cloud. We then have a series of, um, of, of apps, as, as you say, that, um, that are based that if the grower wants to, he can have a look at that data. Um, so you can have a look at the trends of those things. Uh, but also, just as importantly, once it gets back to the cloud, it can then be used in an, uh, in an automation, a smart automation fashion to actually trigger the gate. So, for instance, we may say we just want to be able to, um, you know, maintain a water height in the bay, and then we can have that sensing system and the automation actually do that without any intervention if, if we need to. Um, also, what we're looking to do within the project is with that information that we're collecting, um, it's very good information to be able to look at things like what are yield drivers. So part of the project is also working with Sunrise and incorporating that within their GIS system, where that information can be fed back into that system and then at a later stage used um, to understand maybe some of the variations in yield and yield quality that's been affected by some of the parameters that, you know, some of the methods that's been used um, to grow that crop. Yeah, no, well, that's good. I've, we've been speaking to Alistair Clark on a previous podcast and he's working with Sunrise, pulling in huge amounts of weather data. So being able to link that to management stuff's, yeah, pretty, the potential is pretty exciting. Um, it, get, it can get pretty powerful. But... Um, yeah, for sure. I think... Yeah. Um, I think bringing in all that information, I think there's a, you know, there's a number of projects and, you know, if you think about um, into the future, I think there's, you know, a number of critical elements about, um, you know, making sure the industry runs most efficient on water, you know, and so there's things like, you know, plant breeding that's extremely important. Um, there's things like infield practices and automation, which we're looking on, that's extremely important. Um, also, um, you know, the quality parameters as well. So I think a lot of it is getting all those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together, being able to bring them together and then use that in a, in a very powerful way and through things like the Sunrise GIS system, once all that sort of information is linked, um, it's got, you know, huge potential to be able to um, be really powerful, I think, for, for growers and for the industry. No, that's good. It's a good plug for the Sunrise GIS because I know it's hard to motivate the growers to put the information in. So that's that's good incentive. Um, but what do you, where do you see the benefit of your projects, both I guess yeah, to the industry and and the grower? Yeah, so I mean, I think at a very basic level, um, you know, you can grow rice in a lot of different ways, a lot of different equipment. What you can't grow rice in Australia with is without water. Um, water is critical to the, the future of the industry and so with projects like ours what we're trying to do is minimize the volume of water that's applied and get the most productivity out of it so I think it's critical that uh, into the future that we as a, as a the rice industry maintains that it's you know internationally well renowned for having the, you know some of the highest yields in the world it's very efficient in terms of how it does it with inputs and it needs to be able to maintain that into the future. And I think that when you look at, you know, 
the competition for water through other crops, through other industries, um, also through things like the environment and policy implications that um, are having impacts, well then the better we can get um, the, the water use productivity figures, then the, the better the industry's placed to be able to continue to you know, produce one of the most important crops in the world. Yep, no, definitely. And so what's the sort of time frame for the rollout of your project? Yeah, so we just started the project there late last year. So we actually had some field trials that went in um, late last year and we've got another two full irrigation seasons. So we're funded for a, about a three year period. Um, so we'll have another two full irrigation seasons. We'll be doing, implementing some experiments and demonstrations across farms. Um, so we'll be having you know, field days, regular updates on that um, over the next um, coming two irrigation seasons. So it's quite good in that respect that um, it's not a short-term project, just, just over one year. It's actually got some capacity in there to be able to make sure the technology is put out there and showcased. Um, and then through the commercial partners have, have the ability for growers to actually come on and, um, and look at the technology and um, assess whether it's, it's useful for their particular situation. Yeah, no, that's good. So if you mentioned the growers, do, yeah, do you see um, an opportunity for the growers to have a look in the upcoming season? Yeah, definitely. So uh, we'll have um, a minimum of two field sites, which we'll have um, up and running this coming irrigation season. Um, one up here around Griffith and then um, one um, down at Rappel um, at the experimental um, site down there with Ben. So uh, we'll be running uh, field days throughout the, the year that we'll have an opportunity for growers to come and have a look and field walks and ask questions about it. What we also want to do within that process as well is get feedback from growers on their needs so they can see the system in operation, um, talk on those commercial scales where it's being implemented um, with with, with the commercial guys, what they think um, think of the system, and then we can use that feedback to, to modify things and make sure that um, by the end of the project, we've got a, a really good um, uh, tool or technology that's out there for growers. Yeah, no, that's really good. So if growers want to find out, or anyone wants to find out any more information about your project, how or where do they go or who should they get in touch with? Yeah, so probably um, we give... Uh, particularly during the irrigation season, sort of regular updates on what we're doing. Also um, through uh, field days or field walks um, through our Twitter account. So if you want to follow us on Twitter at um, surf underscore Griffith, so C-E-R-R-F underscore Griffith, um, you'll be able to see what we're up to. You'll see some updates there um, around what we get up to within the irrigation season, what experiments we've got on. Um, also feel free to contact myself. Um, here in Griffith, uh, all eyes available on the mobile on 0429 862920. And we also uh, publish material on things like farmers newsletter, etc., on the uh, research that we're, we're doing. So uh, I think last farmers newsletter had an article in there around the um, elements of the project that we've just discussed, uh, and we'll continue to do that. So we're doing some economic analysis as well um, with Ag Econ around autumn. Um, automation within the rice industry, so what the economics need to look like. Um, so we'll be publishing um, some of that material as well and distributing it to growers. So yeah, um, feel free to contact us if anyone's got any questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. I'll put those sort of couple of links that you mentioned um, in the show notes for the episode. And um, yeah, I think uh, we 
had a link to your project in one of our last in Rice Extension newsletters. So that's a good plug for us too. Thanks so much for joining us today, John. We, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your time. Let's have a chat. No problems, no. That's it from John. And now we're going to cross to Grant Oswald to hear an industry perspective from Padman Stops. Do you want to explain sort of a little bit of background about Padman Stops and how long that they've been involved in the irrigation industry? Yep. Um, it's over 30 years now. Um, and John Padman, uh, he's a dairy farmer as well from um, around Tokemoor somewhere, I think. Uh, and he was, I think he grew frustrated with the order, the irrigation control structure that, that they had. I guess the key thing with John is that he really loved to go out and talk to farmers, get feedback, and then figure out how he could come up with a solution. What, what's been that change process in the irrigation control structures? What, what's happened over the years? Yeah, okay, yep. So we've, <laughs> like, in my farming background, I think that we've gone from, you know, obviously the really primitive stuff, which is clay pipes um, with buckets in them, shovel cuts, um, siphons, you know, six-inch siphons, uh, to um, well, back then we were using that. The slide doors were were were, were really good. Um, the changes at John's Padman's creation around the the overflap door, um, the overshot door uh, with the 100% watertight flat that that would be pivotal in terms of flood irrigation, um, and then uh, automation on top of that so uh, the, the automation to control the structures um, you've got uh, early days was hydraulic water rams and air rams um, for the automation to uh, mechanical timer clocks and then we moved through to uh, for padmans it was about portable automation and with your basic garden timer type thing which was simple and effective and uh, but it worked really well um, and then uh, other companies who are doing the time-based uh, automation from your computer where they set up the radio farm radio systems and um, and control the you know when things open and close uh, from your computer uh, and now we're seeing a swing to what people call IoT, which is Internet of Things, which covers, you know, a broad term and 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 it covers everything from being able to control your heater from your mobile phone in your house and your lights and all that sort of stuff. Um, but for ag tech or ag IoT, it's covering. Uh, it covers sensors. It covers uh, automation of of uh, different parts of the farm. It, it, uh, it covers um, in ag IoT is, is things like um, uh, livestock monitoring and cameras and all those sort of things. So broad, broadly, that's what ag IoT and that's where we're moving to. And a lot of the technology is there to be, um, to be used, but it's bringing that technology together. And that's where we are um, move what's where Padmans have moved to now is taking their portable automation, made it um, connected to the as IoT devices, then um, uh, found the middle ground between the fully portable automation and the permanent automation with with our seasonal products, which I'll talk about more later, um, and 
being able to bring that all together in one platform and um, and that that's talking to farmers and that that's almost uh, would be great because at the moment um, ag tech is getting it can be quite disjointed you know you've got all different providers providing different things and some farmers some feedback we get is about you know uh, I'll be using that company to do my soil moisture monitoring and that one to measure my the water height in my water channels and that farm to that that platform to automate my doors um, and um, and and where I it going now is bringing that all together and and that's where Padman's we, where we're spending a, a lot of resources and time in terms of having a, a, a an internet platform or a control platform that um, is we're trying to be quite open in our platform so if if other providers uh, uh, want to talk to our platform um, we, we, we can offer that via something called apis so if, uh, for example, go on our ag, uh, they they have their their web interface and their their apps. Um, but let's say that they wanted to be able to um, control our devices via something called APIs. Um, they, they they could get control of of our devices. Or if we wanted to pull sensor data out of their sensors um, and display it on our web app, you know, our management app, um, we could display that data so the farmer isn't needing to go, the user isn't needing to go um, looking through all these different platforms. They can just go to one place. Um, and that leads into with the research stuff with John Hornbuckle around um, uh, being able to, with the work that they're doing and, and the projects that they're doing, being able to talk to our platform and get feedback from our sensors, get feedback from our automation, and also to control our automation. So, um, the the, uh, the goals and ambitions of his project, um, we can help facilitate that really easily. Um, yeah, I just wanted to drill down into some of the more specifics. Did you want to just sort of um, run down? Yeah, give give a bit more sort of product information, I guess, about the um, the automated outlet that John is using for his research. Yep. So we've got uh, two type of outlets that we've um, set up. Uh, one is we've fitted inserts, rubber flap inserts into the concrete stocks that they've got there already in situ. Um, so we pull out the, the, the drop boards and insert the rubber flap, uh, overshot flap, um, and it has a winch and uh, a cables already built into the insert. Um, and that winch um, is, a, is a hand winch, which we then just, uh, we can clip in our automation to it and it becomes fully automated. Um, they automation that we've clipped to that insert is um, both automation in terms of being able to variably open and close a rubber flap door. So if you want to open it 20% or 50%, um, as well as it incorporates a water level sensor um, to keep track of uh, what what height your, the ponds are and, and those sorts of things. Um, we can set thresholds to give you alerts. If it drops down below a certain, the water level drops down below a certain point, um, make you aware of that or user aware of that um, and the same if it goes above a certain point so at the moment um, uh, we, we it's not 
I wouldn't say, you know, and this is my farming experience coming in, it's not like fully automated, which I think is where John's research is going to, but um, semi-automated in terms of you get an alert saying the water's dropped down to this level and then you can take intervention remotely. So you don't, you can say, okay, I'll open up that door a little bit more um, uh, to fix up that water level uh, or I'll open up a, a supply channel or, or, or along, something along those lines and, and fix up where it is without having to get out of your tractor or, um, uh, or, or, or leave the job that you're currently doing. You can fix all that up on the go, on the fly, wherever you are and, and have confidence that, that you know what's happening with your rice. So that outlet that we've, that John's using uh, is seasonal. So you, we set it up at the start of the rice season and it stays there. Um, it's not uh, portable um, and that's, um, yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, yep. No, that's, that's good. And I guess it's exciting to sort of over the next couple of years, see what potential John's research can add in, like you said, to make it that fully automated. And you mentioned that, um, you know, like once they're in there for the rice season, but I mean, once the rice season's finished, can you move these stops around? Yes, you can. So the automation side of it can be detached quite easily and moved. Um, uh, the key to it with that automation is uh, the Padman hand winch. So they can be fitted to any product that operates with a hand winch and a, um, and a, and a wire cable. Um, uh, and they can be used on another section of the farm uh, next season or through your winter cropping um, plans. Uh, yeah, so they can be moved around and reset up for that um, purpose. Talking about them being portable, obviously they can be fitted to any sort of stop. Like it does, doesn't have to be all Padman. They can be retrofitted to older stops. Absolutely. So we've uh, at the at one site at Chris Moore says we have retrofitted them to the uh, Bruno Alton um, concrete infrastructure by using a rubber insert that goes for that 100 for that rubber flat part of it, um, and then that enables us to fit the automation onto that. Yeah, um, and I think at the Rice Research Farm in Girardry, uh there's two that have been fitted to millcast um, board type um, things where we've taken the boards out, dropped the rubber insert in, and then attached the automation to the to the winch on the rubber insert. So um, that's one thing that we've done a bit of work on recently with our automation is making sure that it's um, can be used in with all different types of concrete infrastructure and not just pavements. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, I guess that's a really big benefit to the to the grower. Do you see any other benefits um, that your this sort of automated outlet could offer to the grower? Yeah, our benefits are evolving all the time, especially with the work with John and, and, and what we're learning from the farmers. But the benefits that I see um, for automation uh, with stuff that we could deploy now is it's about um, labour savings, leveraging skilled labour, um, uh, lifestyle benefits, um, being able to do stuff uh, on the weekends and, and not be tied to your irrigation. Uh, in terms of labour, it's OH, OH&S risk in terms of people wandering around at night. 
Um, it can all be done from their home. Um, even if they don't want to do the fully automated, they can jump on their web app and say, okay, the water level's here. I'll just lower that door a little bit. Um, and they haven't left their house, which um, uh, to me is, is uh, and also farmers like to be, some farmers, a lot of farmers, like to be in control. So rather than going the full automated when the water level gets to here, then open the door to here, at least they can jump on a web app or a mobile app and say, okay, I can see the water levels here. I might just close that door a little bit. And without having to leave the house or their tractor or, uh, um, you know, or in a freezing cold night or anything like that. Um, and all of that means that you can leverage your skilled labor better. Uh, in, instead of having, depending on the farm setups, instead of having one labour unit looking after 100 hectares, for example, you might have one labour unit looking after 400 hectares or 500 hectares. Um, uh, I'm a, again, my farming experience says that uh, that semi-automated is the way to go where you still have someone involved in making the critical decisions, but being able to do it when on your own terms, rather than having to um, bend your whole schedule and your whole life around irrigation events. Um, and that's where automation, I think, comes into its own and, and really pays for it. And on a per hectare basis, uh, I know I was talking to John about it and the work that he's doing, and um, it's really quite, on a per hectare basis, it, it it's not that high, uh, the cost of it either, you know, when you, relative to paid labour, it, it's a, a really good ratio. Um, uh, and it comes down to every farm's different depending on the size of their farm and mm. of size of their bays and all those sorts of things. But, you know, uh, to set it up, you know, the initial capital outlay, I think John was working out at three or four hundred dollars a hectare you probably best to talk to him about it but yeah, yeah. It, it, it it makes it you know when you look at how much it costs to laser a paddock and all those sorts of things and um per hectare um it, it's not a huge outlay per hectare and with the padman automation and its ability to be moved from one part of the farm to the other part of the farm depending on your crop rotations and water availability it really does reduce that capital outlay requirement uh for the you know for all those benefits that I've talked about yeah, yeah. no I, I think I liked what you said there like um, if you're increasing your labor efficiency and, and things like that then um, when you're saying like yes there's a cost per hectare but then you're saving costs if you're reducing your, your labor sort of input so yeah that all makes sense yeah. to me yeah yeah and probably another thing that I didn't cover quite well was about the water use efficiencies that you get. So when you're doing everything manually, um, you tend to compromise when you're irrigating, you know, speaking from experience, uh, you know, I'll just leave it another hour because that means it's five o'clock in the morning instead of four o'clock in the morning. And that means that um, I can start my day at five and, and, and all those little things like that add up to impacting on water use efficiencies and, um, and automation starts removes all of those um, uh, compromises that you make um, in terms of achieving best water use efficiency. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And well, meaning that you can get another couple of hours of sleep without having to get up in the middle of the night's definitely worth the extra dollars. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. Or like having to rush, rush home too, you know, like you're out and about, you know, at the football or at friend's place and, uh, you know, I've got to get back 
you know, it, it means that you can, you don't have to rush around. and yeah. You know, yeah. You can't really put a cost on lifestyle, but like it's super important. So yeah. Yeah. yeah it means that irrigation is on your terms rather than the farm's terms, you know? Yeah. Yep. 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 No, that's exciting. And if any growers are listening and they want to find out more, where should they go for more information? Um, admin web- website is always good. Yep. Um, so I can put the website uh, in our notes. Yep. Yep. So, uh, you know, www.padmanstops.com.au. Um, we've, just started a new Padman automation website, which is padmanautomation.com.au. Um, of course, give us a ring, um, chat to us. Um, and I think that um, also, I think with part of the work that John Hornbuckle's doing, I think there will be quite a few farm walks and field days and stuff that you know could always find out more. To conclude, we're now going to hear from Chris Morset about his experience using the Padman Stops in his RAS in C20. How did you find using the automated outlet? Uh, they were pretty simple. They uh, solar-powered uh, control panel, which was good. Uh, app-based methodology on your phone seemed to work pretty well. They certainly were watertight and um yeah they worked pretty well they weren't uh the only the few i mean there's pros and cons to everything they were possibly a little bit slow in their operation Uh, i'm sure that could be sped up so if you went to a stop and you wanted to drop a little bit of water out uh, it'd take some time to find a level and take a long time for the winch to work that was about the only negative i could find was it was kind of slow yeah. Um, but I think uh, this part in the project, that's not really that important. Understanding how they work and how they can be used and the benefits they can provide is far more important. Uh, the automated stop itself, yeah, worked pretty well, to be brutally honest. Yeah. Um, we didn't have any problems with them. I think the other drama I might have had too was that after we put them in, we put them in after we'd filled up deep water for PI. And then it kept raining. Uh, so these stops were put in, say yeah. that again, after pe- permanent water. Yeah, so uh, uh, the permanent water went on middle of November. And then we'd filled up for PI. It was actually quite entertaining. I went out and found two blokes waist deep in a check hole trying to put automated stops in. <laughs> and uh, I guess from that viewpoint, we didn't really, I mean, we put a foot of water on at PI. And then from February onwards it rained, so we weren't really moving a lot of water bay to bay. Um, earlier in the season, your first and second flushes and then your perm water, I think you would use them a lot more. Um, but they worked really well. They were simple. Um, they looked pretty robust to me. And I think certainly in that early part of the season, um, what I'd really like to see them do is have an automated uh, head wall for your supply and have the whole lot talk to MI. Yep. I'd really like MI's uh, automatic door system to be integrated into this system so that you've got your pay, bay sensors, you don't want any more than two inches of water on the bay at a time, uh, otherwise it limits your uh, tillering. So I'd really like to see it get to there. I think that's where it can get to. 
I'd just be interested to see the dollars that are involved. Yeah, yeah. So a couple of questions just from that. So you said they'll put in at permanent water. Whereabouts in your paddock were they? Were uh, just on one side or? Yeah, where? down one side. We've got a terrace system with a hundred and fifty mil interval. Uh, so we went down one side, and um, yeah, that was that was how we didn't go both sides. I don't think it's necessary for both sides. Uh, in this situation, if you were row cropping or winter cropping, probably more likely you'd need them in both sides. But once you get to permanent water, you're really only topping up or dropping out. So it's not a, it's not something that would be needed. Uh, actually, at flushing, it certainly would be. Uh, if you were going to do this, if you're going to go full the with this deal. system, yeah, yep. you'd need it both sides. Um, but... Yeah, we, we got it in the middle of the season. and Just we, as a trial start, I think. Yeah, yeah. it was. I mean, it's a, you've got to have a starting point for everything. Um, but I certainly think that if you could get to that stage where it was connected right up the line and your bay level sensors kept your water levels at, you know, sort of 40 or 50 mils or below, then all of a sudden you're getting some, some pretty good value out of them. Yeah, yep. And then you also mentioned just the app, just while I remember. How was like using the app to control uh, it? I think the app was probably pretty easy to use, but I'm a bit of a Luddite with those sorts of things. And because I didn't have to use it every day because it kept bloody raining, then yep. by the time I got back to the end of the season and trying to work the app out, then it was my uh, lack of knowledge on how to use it or my having not used it that was more of a problem. The settings in there are all pretty easy to work out. I mean, I could hit the button now. Yeah, okay. They're still in. They're still in the paddock. Over. I could hit the button now and go over and see if they're standing up. But yep. I think that was a lack of usage or a lack of an understanding or a lack of repetitive usage more than a problem with the app. The app was pretty simple, yeah, to be okay. brutally honest. Yep. So what sort of value or advantages do you see in being able to automate your rice water management? Uh, well, at the moment, I go right around every paddock twice a day. So automated system, I would still go once a day but it would keep my water levels where I want them to be, which is really important in that establishment and early mid-tillering. Uh, it would certainly be beneficial. It's not a lot of fun trying to slug a ute around the place after two inches of rain. Uh, all you do is make a mess. You can't get anywhere, end up the bankless. So from that viewpoint, being able to hit the button, pull all the checks up at once, stop the flow completely would be very, very beneficial. Uh, and just, yeah, just ease. I mean, you get up first thing in the morning, work out what your levels are. If you need to make some alterations, then you know exactly what you've got to do before you leave. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's certainly, a, it's certainly a, a system worth investigating and, and worth implementing. Um, the dollars, I suppose, are probably the... The catch. The determining factor. Yep. Um, and as we go through projects of this nature, the... The, the dollar cost of them will come down. Um, early inception and you know, early development, the price is usually a bit higher, but as you go down the track, as with everything, the, the price of technology does come down. Yep. Um, and also the volume, if there's a lot of demand for them and a lot of them used, then generally that seems to bring the price down a bit too. Yeah. Well, I guess, and especially if, say, we do have a big season C21, that's the time saving could be pretty Yeah, huge. it is significant. Well, I, I'm pretty pedantic about it, so I'll still go around it twice a day. 
but it's just that knowledge and understanding, especially with the bay height sensors and, and the like, that, you know, your levels are right. Yeah. And it's so important in that in that early, it's critical in the early stages of, of tillering to keep that water level down. Um, also beneficial for uh, winter crop after rice. I see for your uh, sod sown first, second irrigations, uh, you wouldn't have to move them. Yeah. But they are portable. I think that's the beauty of the system is that they are retrofitted to existing cement checks. You don't have to go and buy another check and then the technology on top. Yep. Uh, that would probably be cost prohibitive. Uh, so the ability to buy some and move them around to where you want to use them would be, you know, would be really, really handy. Uh, well, it is handy. And, yeah, so from that viewpoint, you don't have to have one in every check. You can move them around to wherever you're using them. In a, in a big year, you might not have enough to do the whole lot. In a, you know, in a smaller year like the one we've just had, you fit them to the paddock that you're using, makes life easy. Um, you go from there. I know it's in its early stages, but would you recommend it to other growers? I think so. I think it, it, it suits, it not only suits the rice production system, it suits all bankers channel systems. Whether you're growing row crop or whether you're growing, uh, I mean, there are other examples, there's a fair bit of automation in some areas in cotton already. Um, it's certainly worth keeping a really close eye on the results of the project and what happens. And if anybody wants to come and have a look, just go and have a look at how it works. Um, John's pretty approachable. He spends a bit of time out there. There would be a few little bits and pieces I would make changes to in terms of their design. But again, nothing horrifically major. It's not not a problem. I certainly think it's well worth doing. And um, But as with everything, you've just got to... Uh, calculate yeah, the value to you based on its cost. Thank you for listening in. Please get in touch via our email, which is extension at rga.org.au. Or if you have a question for us, please send us a message on social media. We will see you in two weeks on Thursday, the 4th of July, for our final podcast episode for this season, focusing on the C20 Harvest Review. Don't forget to share this podcast with your mates and until next time, have a rice day.